Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, and I'm very pleased to welcome my first guest, my guest today, Dr. Tom O'Brien. Dr. O'Brien is a world expert on gluten and its impact on your health. He's an internationally recognized and sought-after speaker and workshop leader, specializing in the complications of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, celiac disease, and the development of autoimmune diseases as they incur inside and outside of the intestines. He holds teaching faculty positions with the Institute for Functional Medicine and the National University of Health Sciences. He is the founder of www.thedoctor.com, that's T-H-E-D-R.com, and he's the visionary behind Betrayal, a docu-series about autoimmune disease. Today we're going to discuss his critically acclaimed groundbreaking book called The Autoimmune Fix. It outlines the step-by-step development of degenerative diseases and gives us the tools to identify our personal disease processes years before the symptoms are obvious and hopefully in time to reverse them. I am so pleased to have him on the show. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I have read many books about uh, autoimmunity and, and digestion and, and paleo and what you should do for your gut. And I was so pleased to read your book because it seemed to explain many of the concepts that had been only fuzzily explained before, and it kind of pulls everything together for me. In fact, the book that you sent me for review now looks like an accordion because I have dog-eared so many pages. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) That's a compliment. That's a nice compliment. Let's let's jump in because... You know, gluten sensitivity is something that has really risen on the radar of so many people. All you have to do is look in the supermarket at the gluten-free shelves. And I suspect that most people are like me, and they have only a very fuzzy notion of what gluten sensitivity is and what it does to your system. So perhaps we can start with that. What do the the people who have this gluten sensitivity experience in their bodies? How is it affecting them? Good. Okay. Well, you know, if you pull at a chain, the chain always breaks at the weakest link. It could be at one end, the middle, the other end. It's your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, wherever your genetic weak link is. You pull on the chain, that's where the link's going to break. So when you have a sensitivity to a food that's causing inflammation in your body, it's pulling on the chain. So it just depends on the individual as to where it's going to manifest. There are over 20,000 studies now in the medical literature on the dangers of wheat and the symptoms that might come from it. For example, here's one. 
Our gallbladders store bile that's made by the liver, and when we eat fats, bile gets squeezed out of the gallbladder down into the intestines to break down the fats, kind of like soapy water. You know, the soap gets the fats off of the pots and pans. Mm-hmm. When you have a sensitivity to wheat, you secrete less than 20% of the amount of bile that you should for the amount of fat that you're eating. So someone that does not have a sensitivity to wheat, they'll secrete, and I'm going to make up a number, 10 milligrams of bile when they eat an avocado. Someone that does have a sensitivity to wheat, they'll secrete 2 milligrams for the same amount of fat in an avocado. So that means you don't digest your fats well, and your gallbladder begins not functioning well, and you can develop gallbladder disease. And it can be it can be as a result of a wheat sensitivity, or it could be your brain, or it could be your heart. That's why Mayo Clinic publishes studies on reversing a very serious disease called cardiomyopathy when you go on a wheat-free diet. And that doesn't happen for everyone, but if they have the sensitivity to wheat and they have cardiomyopathy, when you put them on a wheat-free diet, the cardiomyopathy gets better. So it just depends on where the weak link in your chain is as to where the symptoms can manifest. Hmm. This actually hits quite close to home because my husband had gallbladder disease and he ended up having the gallbladder removed as an emergency procedure, which is no fun. And uh, now I believe that he is, uh, he has all kinds of digestive problems. Yes, of course, because now, now the ability to digest fats, one of the key mechanisms in our body to digest fats has been removed. They've taken it out. And the doctors, the surgeons, hopefully you have a really good surgeon, you don't have complications from the surgery, but they're surgeons. They're not functional medicine doctors, and so they don't say, okay, now you're not going to be secreting any bile anymore when you eat fat, so you better take the digestive enzymes to break down fats. And so thousands and thousands of gallbladder surgeries are done every year. I don't know the exact number, but it's in the tens of thousands, and none of these people are told they now have a vulnerability for the rest of their lives of, the, of having fat deficiencies, meaning the fat-soluble vitamins like A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K. And they're not told that they have to compensate because a part that is supposed to be dealing with that in every meal has been taken out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned functional medicine, and I think that that is a revolution in the approach to medicine that we sorely need. Can you explain what that is for our listeners? Yes, of course. Um, When you get symptoms, uh, no one gets Alzheimer's in their 60s or 70s. You get Alzheimer's in your 20s and 30s, and it just takes decades of killing off brain cells until there's so much damage it becomes obvious. And the damage accumulates in speed. Uh, it gets, you lose more and lose more and lose more and lose more. But it starts decades before there's ever a symptom. So by the time you get symptoms, whatever the disease should be, you're falling over a waterfall. You're just going down. Functional medicine is taking a look. It's called upstream. Let's go back up the river a ways or go back up the stream before you fall over the waterfall 
and let's see what are the things that are causing the problems that eventually will manifest as whatever the weak link in your chain is, like Alzheimer's or heart disease or gallbladder dysfunction. What's going on upstream? And in functional medicine, we teach doctors of all disciplines, mostly medical doctors, but also chiropractors and acupuncturists and naturopaths and osteopaths. We teach them how to look upstream, how to ask the right questions of the patient, what's their health history been, so that we get a big picture overview. And, you know, when, when you get migraines, you don't treat the head. You have to treat what's causing the migraines. And, of course, you want symptom relief, and so you'll do medications to feel better. But you have to look at why is this happening? What's going on upstream? And, unfortunately, in our medical education, we're not taught this. We don't, we're not taught to think this way. What we're taught is how to reduce the symptoms, how to calm down the symptoms. And that's very important to do. Can't say enough about how important it is so people can feel better and function in their lives. But we have to go upstream, and that's what functional medicine is. It was interesting at the beginning of your book, you talk about how you were turned on to the notion of functional medicine when you were absolutely super-duper fit and healthy, and yet you were having problems. Was Do you think this is a... You talked about the weak link. Is it a genetically related trait that gives you your particular weak link? The weak links are contributed to by two main factors. There may be others, but there's two main ones. One is your genetics, and the other is your antecedents. Antecedents are the things that have happened to you and have accumulated in your life. For example, if you love tuna and you eat tuna two to three times a week, you're going to have high levels of mercury in your body because practically all the tuna now, and there are a number of studies that identify this, all the tuna in the world is high in mercury. So that's called an antecedent. Tuna is really good for you, but you get high mercury levels, and if mercury accumulates in your brain, you're going to have brain dysfunction problems, and you'll never know where it came from unless you're looking upstream to see. So... Uh, genetics, you can't do anything about the genes. That's the deck of cards you were dealt in life. But you don't have to turn those genes on. Genes just mean that's a little bit of a weak link. Don't pull on that chain too much. Most diseases that are genetic in nature, something has to turn the gene on. And that's the environment that we're exposed to. That's the critical picture here is this toxic world that we live in. I want to give you an example that was just published six weeks ago by the World Wildlife Fund in conjunction with two major universities. They published a paper that showed there has been, on average, a 57% reduction of all wildlife on the planet since 1970. I read that article in the newspaper, a little summary, and I said, oh, that's too bad. And then I went on to read something else. And when I, uh, I was in an airplane, and when I got back home and got in the car and was driving home on the freeway, I almost hit the brakes. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 57% of everything that lives on the planet is gone in the last 46 years? 57% of everything? And the answer is yes. The hummingbirds, the bumblebees. 
the earthworms, the rainbow trout, the elephants. Just today, this morning in the paper, I saw the cheetahs are going extinct. Oh, my gosh. So it's the toxic world we live in. Tom, you were mentioning this staggering statistic of a 57% reduction in the wildlife and, and life diversity on the planet in the last 40 years. Yes. And another statistic... 46 people, years. 46 years. Another statistic yes. that people should take notice of is that for the first time, life expectancy for the new generation is less than the parents' generation. So we are doing some things that absolutely need to be reversed and, and, and at least understood. What What yes. is so astonishing is how, how both delicate uh, the balance of nature uh, is, and yet how resilient if given a chance. So I think the first step is understanding, and that's why your book is so valuable. Can you go into some of the effects of um, the the toxins, the toxic load? Um, I think something that you call the body burden um, is, and how we can recognize it and deal with it. Yes. Yes, um, it's a critical concept, and I want to apologize to the listeners because I sound like a doomsday uh, uh, prophet, and I'm not that kind of a crazy guy, but when you read the science, when, when you, you just read the science, and it's startling to see 57% reduction, and the percentages were higher of wildlife that live near fresh water. And why is that? It's because they're drinking the water. If we drank the water out of streams and rivers, we'd be dying of cancer really quickly, too. You know, that we're poisoning the planet. And as you said, it was the New England Journal of Medicine that published the paper for the first time in the history of the human species ever. Children are going to get sick at earlier ages than their parents, get diagnosed with diseases at earlier ages than their parents, and die at an earlier age than when their parents die. That's never happened to humans before. That we have to wake up, that the toxicity of this world is so bad now, and this is not an exaggeration, this comes from the Journal of Pediatrics. 250 pounds of toxic chemicals per person per day are being dumped in the United States. 250 pounds per person per day. That's five 50-pound bags for every person every single day. No breaks on the weekend. You know, every single day we're being exposed to all this toxic stuff. So um, our body burden is so high. Um, the Environmental Working Group published a paper that showed 9 out of 10 newborn babies in America have on average 186 toxic chemicals in their blood at birth. These are chemicals wow. that are not supposed to be in their bodies at all. And then we wonder, why are there a million children a year now in the U.S. diagnosed with autism? Because the brain is so sensitive, just so very sensitive. And these toxic exposures that are in the bloodstream, 25% of all the blood in the body is in the brain at any one time. And the brain cells are damaged by this. So you ask for an example. 
A very common chemical that millions of pounds are being dumped every year in the U.S. is called bisphenol A, BPA. Bisphenol A is the chemical that softens plastic, like water bottles, soft contact lenses, uh, many, many different uses for bisphenol A. Bisphenol A binds on estrogen receptor sites in your body. What that means is that this stuff grabs onto the cells that usually use estrogen, like your brain cells, your reproductive system cells. This is for guys and women because uh, we, we men use estrogen also, just a smaller amount, but we use estrogen. Bisphenol A binds on these receptor sites and your body thinks it's loaded with a whole lot of extra estrogen. And so you develop excess estrogen-related symptoms, which can be anything from cancers, testicular cancer, breast cancer, brain dysfunction, brain inflammation. The list goes on and on. That's only one of thousands of chemicals that we're exposed to every single day. We have to wake up to this because we're killing the planet. And it's not okay to just say, well, I'll get... I'll get uh, I'll avoid bisphenol A whenever I can. We really have to have a paradigm shift in how we think about this whole world that we live in and how we take care of this world. You know, I'm not an environmentalist or a nutcase for this, but as a doctor, when you read the science and you see what's happening to our bodies and you wonder why your brother developed cancer at 28 or your father died at 54, or your mother has Alzheimer's in her 60s. I mean, what's going on here? It's that our bodies are becoming so toxic, so full of these toxic chemicals. That's why the book is so important, is because I wrote the book just for people to get an understanding of what the immune system is, how it's there to try to protect you, how you can tell if you're crossing the line, exposed to too many toxins, what are the tests that you can do? What are the symptoms that you might get? Where do these toxins come from? It's a big picture overview. I don't have any one answer in the book. I've got a number of suggestions that really help, have helped lots of patients over the years. But it's really kind of a wake-up book so that people want to learn more. And, you know, I start many of my lectures to doctors with this slide. It's a picture that I took in the Museum of Science in Florence, Italy. And it's Galileo's finger. And Galileo bequeathed that all of his inventions could be on display for all of posterity, as long as they also displayed his finger. And so there's this, in, in a glass case, it's Galileo's finger. And I hold that up, you know, hold up that picture, and I say one thing. If there's one thing that you remember from this talk today, one thing. And so in my book, I hope that what people walk away with is an awareness of kind of an OMG. Oh, my gosh, I need to learn more about this. And you spend one hour a week, just one hour a week, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. or whenever it is. But every week, one hour, reading a little more about this topic. And if you spend one hour a week on this topic, I promise you, within six months, you now know how to protect your family. You know how to reduce your exposures. You know how to help your body um, process and detox from these toxins that we've all got. 
one hour a week is all it takes. There's no magic bullet. There's no magic pill. There's no magic diet. There are small things that you can do. And my, my philosophy is base hits, win the ball game. Stop going for home runs. Just do base hits and you will win the ball game. You will have a healthier life and a healthier family. That was one of the messages that really hit home with me um, because in our society, we always want the quick fix. And yes. we're not willing to take the itty-bitty incremental steps that gradually make the, the, the big improvement. Let's get back to the question of wheat and gluten because that really is a core specialty of yours and it's something that there's a lot of misunderstanding about. What does gluten do uh, in our bodies and um, particularly the, the shift uh, in, in development of wheat strains and so on? Don't even want to go. Yes. There. Okay. Don't want to go there. Okay. Sure. A um, couple of basic uh, comp concepts. There was a company that formed in 1950 or 1960. I don't know when they formed. It was around then, and they came out with a product that was so well received that after a while, the name of the company became an action verb. And in your office, you might take a piece of paper and hand it to someone. Say, here, would you please Xerox this? Well, Xerox is the name of a company, but it became known as the copy machine and the action of copy. That's what's happened with the word gluten, is that uh, we think about gluten sensitivity, but it's really not gluten, it's wheat. G gluten is not bad for you. Bad gluten is bad for you. Because there's gluten in rice, and there's gluten in corn, there's gluten in quinoa. But it's the family of gluten proteins in wheat, rye, and barley that are the problem. But we associate the word gluten as being a problem. You know, it's, it's just wrong language, but that's what we've got to work with now. So it's really wheat that's the problem. And there are many proteins in wheat, not just gluten. There are many, but gluten is a primary one. And what happens for everyone when you eat wheat it was Dr. Holland, H-O-L-L-O-N, at Harvard and his team that published the paper on this about a year and a half ago. And they showed that every human, and that was their language, all humans, every human, when they eat wheat, every time they eat wheat, they develop something called intestinal permeability. The slang term for it is the leaky gut. Now, the fastest growing cells in the body are the inside lining of the intestines. Every three to seven days, you have a whole new lining to your intestines. So if you think of the lining of the intestines like cheesecloth, when you eat wheat, you tear the cheesecloth, but it heals. But you have toast for breakfast, you tear the cheesecloth, it heals. You have a sandwich for lunch, you tear the cheesecloth, it heals. Pasta for dinner, you tear the cheesecloth, it heals. Day after day after week after month after year after year until one day you have waffles for breakfast, you tear the cheesecloth, it doesn't heal. Now you get that intestinal permeability that doesn't go away. And that is the gateway in the development of the autoimmune diseases. 
from multiple sclerosis to rheumatoid arthritis to Alzheimer's to Parkinson's. It's the intestinal permeability that is the setup for these diseases to begin and to progress. So wheat is a mild toxin. It's a mild toxin. It's not a major toxin. But because of the extreme amount of toxins we're exposed to every day, our threshold, we lose our threshold, and even the mild toxins become an irritant. And at some point, it's called loss of oral tolerance. At some point, when you eat wheat, you tear the cheesecloth, but all of a sudden, it doesn't heal anymore. You've crossed the line. You've lost oral tolerance. Now you have a problem, and it doesn't go away. And that's the gateway into the development of Hashimoto's disease or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, any of the autoimmune diseases. Tom, can you remind us what your website is and what will people find there? Yes, the website is thedr.com, thedoctor.com. And what you'll find there are many handouts that explain different aspects of wheat sensitivity, gluten sensitivity, the development of autoimmune diseases, a number of interviews that are there, um, uh, protocols on how to begin to heal from some of the diseases that we've developed. You know, to give you a sense of the power of this work, of this functional medicine work, Dr. Dale Bredesen at UCLA, he runs the Buck Institute at UCLA, and he published a paper in the Medical Journal Aging that demonstrated he reversed Alzheimer's in nine out of 10 patients at UCLA, card-carrying Alzheimer's patients, completely reversed it within five years. But it was a 34-point checklist of going upstream to see, did they have this that contributed? Did they have this? Did they have this? Did they have this? And starting to fix all of those things, teaching people how to live a more balanced life, and their brain function came back. We have seen so many different autoimmune diseases get arrested, meaning they stop and people start functioning better from rheumatoid to MS to lupus to scleroderma to vitiligo, alopecia. The autoimmune mechanism can be arrested if you understand the dynamic. If you're looking for a magic pill, give it up. There is no magic pill. Some of the medications can help you feel better, and that's really important. While you're working on the lifestyle choices, the toxins you're exposed to, the bottom line in functional medicine is get the bad stuff out and put the good stuff in. And so in order to do that, everyone needs to have a basic understanding of what that means. And that's what the autoimmune fix is all about, is understanding this dynamic in layman's terms not in geek language, in layman's terms as to what's going on in my body and why is this happening? And then knowing the questions to ask of your doctors and so that your doctors can explore with you to find out specifically what are the upstream issues that have to be dealt with for you. Let's get back to the gut because the gut really is the prime mover in our immune system. Um, you talk about the cheesecloth syndrome. What exactly is going through the holes in the leaky gut? Yes, Mrs. Patient, 
When you eat a food, proteins are like a, per a pearl necklace. Hydrochloric acid that's made in your stomach undoes the clasp of the pearl necklace. Now you're holding a string of pearls. The other en enzymes in your body that your body produces act like scissors to cut that pearl necklace into smaller clumps of pearls. Uh, and then smaller clumps and smaller clumps and smaller clumps until you're cutting the pearl necklace into each individual pearl. Those are called amino acids. The amino acids can go right through the cheesecloth into the bloodstream. And then your body uses those amino acids to make new bone cells and brain cells and kidney cells and whatever you need. But it's those single amino acids that make the difference. What happens when you get tears in the cheesecloth? Because only the single amino acids can get through the cheesecloth. Everything else is too big. But what happens when you get tears in the cheesecloth is that clumps of the pearl necklace can get through the tears. They're called macromolecules, big molecules. And so you might get an 18 pearl clump or a 32 pearl clump or a 60 pearl clump of the pearl necklace that gets through the tears in the cheesecloth. Those get into the bloodstream and your body says, whoa, what's this? This is not good for me. You better fight the immune system. You better fight this. And your immune system makes antibodies to protect you from this macromolecule. So if the macromolecule is chicken, you make antibodies to chicken. Now you're allergic to chicken or bananas or uh, rice or beef or carrots. And these are the people that do a 90 food panel, to a blood test to see what they're allergic to. And it comes back, they're allergic to 25 or 30 different foods. And it's, oh my God, that's everything I eat. Well, of course it is. Because your immune system's trying to protect you. These macromolecules are getting into the bloodstream and they shouldn't get in there. So what do you do? Stop eating the foods, heal the gut, stop tearing the cheesecloth and heal the damage that's there. Wait six months, go back and check, and now you're allergic to two foods or three instead of 20 or 25. Hmm. Now, you have a reference to blood tests for the different antibodies. Yes. Uh, are these blood tests pretty easy to do, or do you have to sweet-talk your doctor into ordering them for you? Well, the blood test is easy to do, but sweet-talking your doctor can be a real nuisance, can be a pain, because <laughs> so many doctors just don't know about this, and they think, oh, what are you talking about, there's no such thing. Well, of course there is, just read the studies. So um, there, a blood test came out six years ago that looks at 24 different tissue antibodies. Where's the weak link in your chain? Where is it? And this blood test looks at six different antibodies to your brain, three to your heart, your lungs, your liver, your bones, your muscles, your kidneys, to your stomach, your intestines, to see where's the weak link right now? I mean, where where is your chain being pulled? Hopefully you identify this before there's been so, so much tissue damage from these elevated antibodies that uh, you now start getting symptoms. Hopefully you can identify it early. I did this blood test and for me it was in the research stage, it wasn't available yet. And I was 44 at the time. I was in the peak of my career. I was doing triathlons and scoring in the 
the range of the 30 to 35 year olds, the top 10% of 30 to 35 year olds. So I was walking tall with my chest puffy, you know, guy's guy feeling great <laughs> about my health. And I do this blood test and I found out I've got three elevated antibodies to my brain. So what? I called the lab and I said, this is a mistake. No, it's not. Do it again. We did. We know it's you. We did. It's accurate. And I, I had myelin basic antibodies elevated. That's what causes MS. Cerebellar antibodies elevated. That's what causes elder people being unable to run up and down the stairs that they have to hold the railing. And it's in their brain. It's not their muscles. It's their brain where the cerebellum's been being damaged for 30 or 40 years. And I had gangliocyte antibodies elevated. That causes brain shrinkage and eventual dementia. I had all three of these elevated. This was 1997. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is a wake-up call. I had no idea that I had all this going on in my body because I looked healthy. I felt healthy. I was performing well. But the damage was accruing. And you have to kill off enough cells of wherever your weak link is before you get symptoms. You don't wake up with elevated antibodies one day and get symptoms that day. They've got to be killing off tissue for years beforehand. So as a result of this, when I found this out, I, I really dove into the literature to understand what was going on. That's when I discovered all of this information about the mechanisms that cause autoimmune diseases. It's the same. For most autoimmune diseases, there's a prerequisite. One, you've got to have the gene. That's the deck of cards you were dealt in life. Nothing you can do about that, but you don't want to turn the gene on. Two, an environmental trigger that turns the gene on. And three, intestinal permeability, the leaky gut. And the science is very clear on this. And what the scientists say is that you can arrest, and that's their language, arrest the development of autoimmune disease by healing the gut. So to your question about the gut, the gut is critically important in reversing whatever autoimmune mechanism is going on for you. And what we talk about a lot in the book is how do you evaluate the gut? How do you see what its functional capabilities are right now? What do you do if you have a problem? What kind of problems might you have? And what, what do you do about them? Now, you have a transition protocol that you recommend even before or if people can't get to convince their doctor to order a blood test, something that people yes. can do on their own to at least get the ball rolling. Tell us about that. Yes, yes. We have found this has worked so many times. Uh, so when people, they can't afford to do the tests or uh, for whatever reason their uh, their doctor won't do it for them, uh, the recommendation is give us three weeks, and for three weeks, eat all the vegetables you want, all the quality meats that you want, no lunch meat, no inexpensive meats, and eat rice and quinoa, uh, maybe amaranth, some grains, but don't eat any wheat. No wheat at all, none, and no dairy and no sugar. Three weeks. Just give it three weeks and notice what happens to your body and how you feel. People are blown away when all of a sudden they say, wow, I'm sleeping the best I've slept in years. Or, wow, my energy's up. I'm not falling asleep in the afternoon anymore. Or, wow, I can think so much clearer that I've been able to think in the past. You just notice 
that all of a sudden you're feeling so much better. And when people do this, and then they go out and have a pizza, they come in and say, oh, Doc, I felt so sick the next day. I say, good, good. No one can argue with you when you feel that sick. Good for you. Now, if you go out and eat pizza anymore, that, that just shows that your IQ just went down somewhere. It's like, what's the matter with you? You feel you feel sick when you eat the food? You're going to eat it anyway? What's the matter with you? <laughs> but you can't tell that a food's bad for you when you're eating it all the time, unless it gives you stomach pain. Those are the lucky ones. If it gives you brain fog or thyroid problems or muscle aches or lack of energy, you can't tell it's the food you ate last night that's doing that to you. That's why. Give it three weeks. No wheat, no dairy, no sugar for three weeks. Eat everything else you want, but none of those, and just notice how you feel. That in itself is a wake-up call for so many. They just, they, they, their, their children do better in school. The teacher says those new drugs are working really well. And you say, I didn't give him any drugs. I just took wheat out of his diet. And they just kind of look at it. I've heard that before, is what they often will say. Um, it's, it's so important, everyone out there, all, all of the listeners. It is so important. What you put in your mouth determines how you function. The smartest thing you could do is make sure that what's on the end of your fork is actually healthy for you. But it takes a little bit of study to figure out what's healthy for you and what's not. You can't blindly go along anymore and believe what they tell you on television. You you just can't do it. Mm -hmm. And of course, this just turns down the flame so that you can get even further to the root cause. Well, we're coming up to our final break, and then we will be back with Dr. Tom O'Brien. You know, if feeling better is not enough incentive. I'm going to say the magic word that just might capture people's attention, particularly the distaff side of the listenership. Can you tell us the connection between weight and toxicity? Oh, yes. I thought you were going to say sex. (laughs) 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 Yes. Yes, of course. When we're exposed to toxic chemicals, our body has a defense mechanism that tries to isolate those chemicals and keep them out of the bloodstream and out of circulation. Why? To protect the brain. Because 20 to 25% of all the blood's in the brain at any one time. And it's very, very sensitive tissue. So we store these toxic chemicals in our body. Where do we store them? In our fat cells. That's where the majority of them are stored, also in the bone, but mainly in the fat cells. So your fat cells start to swell. They swell with all these, they're called endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Endocrine means hormones. So these hormone-disrupting chemicals. So you're disrupting your thyroid function. You're disrupting your testosterone male function. You're disrupting your estrogen-progesterone female function because these toxic chemicals get into the cells and then the body holds more water, the fat cells swell, they swell. So you gain weight, you gain weight from this. And when people start to detox, if they do it properly, the result is not only do they feel better and think better and function better, but they lose weight. That's why uh, my friend, Dr. Bill Davis wrote this great book called Wheat Belly a number of years ago. 
And he talked about the tremendous amount of weight loss that occurs for most people when they go wheat-free. It doesn't mean mostly wheat-free. Going wheat-free means going wheat-free, no cheating. And when you do that, many, many people will shed 10 pounds, 15 pounds uh, in a month without counting calories. They, because they're still wow. eating a lot of food, but they just start shedding some of these toxins. The fat cells start flushing, flushing out some of the toxins. I thought it was important that you pointed out the necessity to drink a lot of water, that that's the easiest way to get rid of the toxins without having an adverse reaction. Oh, it's a critical first step. It's critical. You, you cannot start detoxing until you're able to eliminate. Because you, you start mobilizing all of these toxins out of your cells, and if you have average or less than average bowel movements and you don't drink enough water so you're not urinating often enough, all these toxins that have, have been in storage are now in the bloodstream. You get sick. You get really sick. Don't do it. You have to make sure that your bowels are working really well first and that you're drinking plenty of water. It's about somewhere between, somewhere about a half ounce of water per pound body weight. So I weigh 180. That's 90 ounces of water a day. 90, nine zero. So if you weigh 120, that's 60 ounces of water a day. It's almost a gallon Uh, Mm -hmm. every day. Without exception, every day. And most of us don't do that. And so we're stagnant. You know, it's like things aren't moving very well. And just like a, just like a stream, if it's a fast-flowing stream, the water tends to be a little bit clearer than if it's a slow, barely-moving, stagnant stream. And that's the way our bloodstream sure. is. You've got to keep things moving, so you have to have enough liquid for that to occur. And Coca-Cola doesn't do it. Lemonade won't do it. Iced tea won't do it. It's got to be water, pure water, the cleanest water that you can get your hands on. I want to point out to our listeners that eliminating sugar also means eliminating sugar substitutes. Tell us why. Oh, my goodness. The sugar, the, sugars, the sugar substitutes are much, much worse. If you're going to eat sugar, eat sugar. I don't think you should, but if you are going to eat sweets, eat sugar. Because the sugar substitutes disrupt your microbiome. They completely change the microbiome to a non-healthy, fat-storing, increased weight microbiome. So the sugar-free substitutes, the sugar-free pops, the sugar-free desserts and all of that, people gain weight. And it's because they've disrupted their microbiome. The good bacteria in their gut have been destroyed and more of the bad bacteria that store calories that the message is store calories more of that bacteria starts to develop classic example is the Pima Indians I was going to ask you to tell us about them absolutely oh okay good the classic example is the Pima Indians you know for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years maybe thousands of years they've lived in the desert area in the four corners of the southwest and down into Mexico and, you know, there's not, you, you can't grow stuff there. So what did they eat? They ate whatever they could catch and, you know, whatever they could harvest from cactus and things, that, some roots maybe. But they're, um, it's not a lush tropical area or a, a lush area with good soil to grow crops. They had very little to eat. 
So those people that did not have efficient storage of calories, they died. And when they die off, they don't reproduce. But those whose bodies had efficient storage of calories with what little they could find to eat, their bodies were more efficient in storing those calories, they reproduced. And so they survived, they reproduced, and in their environment, they thrived. Now, the, how is it that you are efficient at storing calories? It's the microbiome. It's the bacteria in your gut. And if you have too much of the bacteria called permicutes, you will store lots and lots of calories. And the Pima Indians have high ratios of permicutes in the bacteria of their gut. It saved, the, there's, it saved their culture. It saved their lives. They developed it over generations and generations and generations. Now let's fast forward to the 1930s and 1940s. Now the Pima Indians are living on reservations, eating the food that the Bureau of Land Management's giving them, all the canned stuff and the garbage foods, and what's the result? Today, 50% of Pima Indians are morbidly obese and have type 2 diabetes by the age of 35. 50% of them. And it's because their microbiome is a calorie efficiency machine. That's their you know, generation after generation that became more efficient at using calories and storing calories. Now they're eating high calorie, low nutrient density food. They're eating the garbage that everybody else eats. But their bodies are more efficient at storing the calories. And it's a survival mechanism for them. Now, it's not conscious on their part. That's the bacterial families that they inherited from their mother in birth. And so it passes on generation to generation to generation. That's such a telling story. And you also point out the importance of probiotics and prebiotics. Go a little more yes. into the nature of the microbiome. Yes. What's most important in our gut is the diversity of bacteria. All the different thousands of families of bacteria that are supposed to be there. You know, for every message from the brain going down to the gut, there are nine messages from the gut going up to the brain. And the messages from the gut going up to the brain are from the microbiome, the bacteria in your gut. They actually control how much brain hormone called neurotransmitters you make, how much serotonin, how much melatonin, how much norepinephrine. That's controlled. The term is modulated. That's controlled by the microbiome. So there are thousands of families of bacteria in our gut, and it's the ratio of those families now, back in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, we knew that if you take probiotics, the good bacteria, if you take it, it seemed to help and people got healthier. And that's true. But we now know that it's not any one particular type of probiotic that's important. It's the diversity of probiotics that's most important. You want the whole family because some probiotics in your gut, the good bacteria in your gut, control how your heart functions. Other bacteria control how your lungs function. Other bacteria control how your brain functions. So you want the families of probiotics in your gut, not just one or two. 
So the recommendation that we give to our people, and we've been teaching doctors this now for a number of years, is that you go to Whole Foods or any natural food store, buy four or five different fermented vegetables. Just make sure they're not pasteurized. And you, you buy sauerkraut. You buy kimchi. You buy curry-flavored fermented vegetables. You buy fermented beets. And every day you walk by the refrigerator with a fork and you just take a forkful, just one forkful every day. Because the fermentation process of vegetables produces the good bacteria that thrive in your gut. And by varying what you're taking, you're inoculating yourself with many, many different families of the good bacteria. And so you're helping to protect your gut. So that's the probiotics, the good bacteria. It's okay to take a probiotic supplement. Of course, it's helpful. But the bigger picture is the diversity. And by eating a little bit of fermented vegetables every day, you're going to change your microbiome substantially within a few months and to a much healthier microbiome. And the other so, component is the pre... Go the, ahead. the prebiotics, which is the uh, cellulose from vegetables. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our show. And I want to really, really recommend this book to you, The Autoimmune Fix by Dr. Tom O'Brien, because we've only scratched the surface of what you can do to your health, for your health. Happy reading, and I want to thank you, Dr. Tom, for this wonderful work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, really my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Have a happy and healthy new year. And don't forget to get this book, The Autoimmune Fix, Dr. Tom O'Brien. His website is thedrthedr.com. See you next year. Thanks for listening.